And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele! Right, folks, that is what we're talking about. Larry Babb, how about that introduction? The best darn announcer in all of broadcasting. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Thank you very much, Larry Babb. I am your host, David Steele, and yes, welcome back to the broadcast. It's a new year. Happy New Year to all from your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. We are looking forward to a great one, hoping you are too. We are back in the saddle, coming at you live from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, and what a fine show we have for you today. It was, it was early in the year last year that we set out to bring you a multi-part series on our old pal and hot rod legend, Tommy Sparks, and I'm happy to say that we're completing that series for you today with this third and final installment. Tom was a great friend of mine and mentor, and it's really been a labor of love to pour over these old recordings and try and assemble this final chapter of the series. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll also have heard me explain how these recordings were made and during which years of Tom's life. Uh, You know, this all happened in the early and mid-2000s. They were done long before I was working full-time with the American Hot Rod Foundation, so My recording gear was very basic, and I was really just trying to make sure Tom's story was preserved. Nothing more than that. So these are very much in the style of what might be affectionately known as field recordings. You know, these are down and dirty, but they're very useful. And because of that, and the fact that Tom did have a tendency to kind of jump from subject to subject, this is all very conversational. And really, the more important point is that we did these talks over several years. So some of these things were repeated, some were half told and finished later. So the process of editing, you know, what amounts to dozens and dozens of hours of audio was kind of a daunting one. So in the end, and as you'll hear, the best way to do this was to fade from one point or piece of subject matter to the next in order to give the broadcast some sort of cohesive timeline. It wasn't easy and it skips and bumps here and there, but the story gets told in Tom's words and and that's really all we care about in the end. Now, one of the things that I'm so happy we're able to pass along to you with this episode is the vastness of Tom Sparks's accomplishments. Of course, we all know him as one of the premier flathead Ford engine builders of all time, We're familiar with his years with Sparks and Bonnie and the cars that came from that effort. But what you may not know, and this is kind of a big one, you may not know about the bicycle racing. And he did this on a champion level, literally. No joke. Our man, Tom Sparks, was not only a one-time California state champion bicycle racer, but he was also a first alternate for the U.S. Olympic team in 1960. So... 
as I like to say about my old pal, that's that's kind of how he did everything. So um, I really think you'll enjoy this this look into Tom and his life and his character and kind of the metal of the man. He he's just uh, never ceases to amaze me. And going over these old recordings really brought back some great memories for me and just reminded me of, you know, how lucky I am to have uh, spent so much time with him. And and I think you'll I think you'll come away uh, enjoying hearing this as much as I did. Yeah. Buckle up. Grab hold and enjoy our third and final installment of the Rodcast featuring Hot Rod legend, my old pal, Tommy Sparks. Had Ray Brown already left when you left? Oh yeah, he left at least a year before I did, maybe a year and a half. And he opened, the shop he opened was strictly his, right? Yes, Ray Brown Automotive. Where was that, what part of town was that in? It was first just a, a very small shop on Western, south of Santa Monica Boulevard. And he was there for less than a year when he opened a much bigger shop on Wilton and Santa Monica Boulevard. And that's where I worked for him. And he was doing more general business stuff, right? No. Well, he was doing high performance stuff? Oh, high performance. Yeah, we didn't do anything. General at all. It was all maybe just hot rods and building engines for guys for the salt for, you know, for Elmer Rods and Bonneville. It's amazing that there was that much work. That there could be, I mean, you had, I mean, I can think of, obviously, I wasn't there. I mean, and, and, and I, I can think of four shops off the top of my head that we're up and running and just doing that. I mean, Myers, Edelbrock, SoCal, and Ray Brown well, were all making, were build, just building high performance engines full time. The other one was Anson, <laughs> uh, Louis Center. Louis Center, yeah. Just, we saw them at Edelbrock's a few weeks ago, a month, month or so. Yeah, that's right, we did. But I don't know, that's why I've been told that he's Run down a lot, but uh, mm. yeah, it was. Yeah, well, I mean, this is where the the headquarter guys were, you know, Clay Smith cams and Winfield cams, and most all the cam grinders were out here, you know, before it really caught on big in the east. And so, I mean, yeah, this is kind of where it all started. Yeah. It just seems like that's a lot of shops, all in close, close proximity, building high-performance engines. It just seems like a lot of... It's just hard for me to imagine there being that much business, but well, I guess there was. Probably a bunch of shops I'm... I'm uh, well, that I wouldn't be aware of and that I'm probably forgetting as well. Bell Auto Parts. I think they were doing building engines on the side, too. Uh, that was a long ways away from us, you know. It's, oh, Bell Auto was a... I mean, I was down in Bell. That's, that was a long ways away in those days. How long were 
interview at Ray Brown's with Ray Brown? Not very long, maybe a year and a half. Doing the same kind of work that you did at Myers? And yeah, yeah. Uh, Brown always, I think, appreciated me more. He was always telling me how good I was in this shit, you know. He still does, I don't know why. Uh, and that's when I met Ted Bonney. He had a, a hot rod, and he always in there asking questions, you know. Ray, Ray left because he was getting a, he was kissing it up a bit with Myers, you know, and they give, give him heads and manifolds for his roadster. For his green roadster. Green roadster, and then he, he was a, Ray was a very sociable guy. And uh, so that's, Ray had a, you know, he had a very good business. Just just building engines, basically. And then he went into seat belts. What do you remember about the times when, because uh, I hear a lot about this today when, when guys are talking about the first couple of years of Bonneville. They talk about Ray Brown having a, a belly tanker. Yeah. That was pretty tough to beat, and Alex's belly tanker was yeah, they was had, kind of the other one. They had a little rivalry. They had a rivalry for some time, you know, for, I don't know, a year anyway. Uh, Ray had a V860 in, in his first belly tank, and uh, Ray always had a little money. I don't think his parents were ever rich, but he always had enough money to enough sense to beat most of us out. Always a very nice guy, and uh, they fought it in and out at Bonneville for at least two years. And they were, you know, like within a mile of each other. A mile an hour, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, now did you, were you working, did you go to work for Ray sometime around that time and work on that? Car? No. Uh, you were still at Myers when that was going on? I don't know whether I was still at Myers or I'd been to Ray and quit and opened my own shop. Because huh. I had this, the, the three cars of ours up at Bonneville, I know, the same time he was had one of those three Myers. Another guy that worked for him, He's been in hot rods all his life. He is John Wolf. So Ray must have been awful good to to be a mentor to or a guy to at least work with and and learn from. As soon as Chrysler came out and went fifty three, he's a Hemi. Maybe it was earlier, maybe fifty one. I don't know. But, uh, well, I still working for him. That was the first time I saw him, and uh, he wrote a, not a big book, but a, like a pamphlet on uh, hopping up a, a Chrysler Hemi. And Ray got heavy into the seat belts, and you know, no one thought much of that. It wasn't, it wasn't a popular item in those days. You put them in your car, and, you know, 
We were riding with his one and all. You know, are you safe to ride with? Huh? Yeah. My wife always told me that too, because she I had him in a '38 Ford. She'd go someplace to pick parts up, and, and somebody would go with her or something. I always criticized her because we had seat belts. Hmm. Ray made a a very good belt, and uh, I didn't have much to do with it other than doing hand work on the buckles and that kind of stuff. What do you mean when you say hand work? Well, when I, after they got cast, they all had to take, you know, a little dye grinder. Oh, and clean up the casting. That type of thing. And assemble them. So I worked for him for two years, maybe three years. Building engines, that's about all we did there. Hmm. Well, I was working on a Ford, probably a 46, 7 or 8 Ford. I had it jacked up in the air in the shop. And that's when someone came in and hit the back end of it. And the car fell down on my head. Right? Fractured the skull and the cheekbone. And uh, I woke up in the hospital a few hours later. I guess when the ambulance had got there, somehow Ray had had the strength to reach down and pull, the, lift the car up and pull the creeper out. And he said, the wishbone was across my head and as a as my head caved in farther, the car would go down. Oh my God! And he, you know, he just got it out in time, I guess. I guess I left there probably a few months after that. You must not have been able to work for a while. Oh, yeah, but not a while. I would say two weeks. It didn't hurt anything in the in the head. It was they they put some type of bandage on and and pulled back into shape, they said. I, who knows? But also, part of it was that he was on the other side of the counter. Yeah, he, he jumped. And it wasn't a low counter, you know, it was a fairly high counter. And he vaulted over the counter. What do you remember about how he convinced you to leave Myers and come work for him? Well, he said that he was a lot easier to work for. I wanted a day off, I could. If I wanted to work on my own car in his shop on weekends or after hours, I could do it. Hmm. So, that's pretty strong sale. That's about all it took. Yeah. <laughs> and what was your car back then? Like, around the time... Well, I know when you went to work for Meyer, you bought a new car, right? You bought a 50 Ford? Yeah. I still had a hot rod, you know, when I was working with Ray. Which was... What, your 29 Roadster? Yeah. The full fendered car that's in this picture here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was full fendered sometimes, and sometimes it didn't have fenders. So it had fenders when I would get a ticket and have to go get it inspected. I had to finish with it going, you know, with just the minimum goals. So. But Ray had the personality to to talk to the guys at Hot Rod Magazine and NHRA and the 
photographer, and, you know, he had a good line. He was a, he was a, more congenial. I was always bashful and laid back. And when they wanted something from me, they'd, they'd say, you know, well, we'll do this article, but you got to do such and such on the car for me, and that kind of shit. because of Ted Bonnie, but it, no, he'd bring his hot rod in there to have his work on it. Then. Mm. And I got to know Ted that way. And he... Uh, what was his hot rod that he would bring in? 32 Roadster. Was he running at the lakes and... No, he had, he had bought the car and he wasn't... He didn't know too much about it. No, I don't think he ever ran. I don't remember ever running at the lakes. He was just, he was in sort of the street, street racing and that type of thing. And, but he kept talking to him, come on, let's open our own shop. The guy that, says, the guy that I use car lot over on Vermont that I do stuff for, and wants to sell out, and, because uh, he's moving back to Iowa. Just go over and talk to him anyway. Well, I went over and, talked to him and I mean this is over a period of probably a year and uh, he wanted six thousand dollars and he didn't own the property just a month to month lease there's back a lot of dirt lot with a hot dog stand in front and where was this? 1065 North Vermont, uh, Vermont, <clears throat> 150, 60 yards south of Santa Monica Boulevard. And I got, you know, pictures of it in the, I go back in the old books. And, uh, oh, here's a picture of it right here. Oh, yeah, yep. That's, and is that, that's him on the right? That's Bonnie, yeah. <laughs> He's pretty clean. Yeah. He was a front <laughs> man, a good, good talker, you know. Uh-huh. He was like Brown. He could really sway people. And, hmm. Yeah, it looks like you're doing all the work. <laughs> that's what he always said, too. I never cared about talking to people that much. Hmm. That's obviously what it takes, and uh, I just didn't do it. We were in business there for a couple of years, and then we heard that the shop across from uh, one of the big movie guy on Melrose and Gower. We rented this building. I have pictures of it too. Uh, Across from him, it's basically across from Paramount, too. And started just doing, we were doing basically hot rods and sports cars. Probably more sports cars than hot rods. And uh, we made it pretty good. We made a living, put it that way. The first place that we bought was three thousand dollars, not six. 
and Ted didn't have 10 cents to his name. And the aunt that raised me had, had died and left the house to my sister and myself. Praise, it was six thousand dollars, so I got three thousand. We gave it to this guy on Vermont, so we had the shop. And we did okay, I guess. Did much better in the lo location across from Paramount. The building that we rented never came out for sale, and still isn't for sale. And People are in it now still rent it, you know. Huh. Never for sale. They kept telling me that and I didn't believe it. So I kept my eye open for oh we used to lose there for several years. Probably seven or eight years. Sparks and Bonnie were were in No, I had gotten rid of Bonnie. Uh we've been friends all through, but he had the ideas to to build an electric car. Mm, mm hmm Uh about like a golf, well I don't even know, I don't think they even had golf carts then. But it was a three wheel, three wheel car. And I didn't love the idea, but then I went along with it. Didn't cost anything, you know. Somehow I saw a picture of it in here, but we went out to the junkyard and cut up a, a 50 Ford and got the rear section and we narrowed that and then made a fiberglass mold and uh, you know we still had a little area to lift up to put stuff and now this didn't have anything to do with. Uh, well, weren't you trying to invent something for handicapped people as well? Yeah, that's what this was. That's what this was. Okay. It had a tiller. That would you turn with the tiller. You turn the handle like a motorcycle, and that would. Uh, and that was the throttle. That was the throttle. And what powered it? Oh, it was electric. You said. That, well, yeah, we had uh, four batteries. And we'd use a some kind of truck starter motor. It had the you know had the wound to take care of the 24 volts. And that was about it. Yeah, I had an upholstery. Yeah, it's pretty nice. But you had a name for the. Yeah, we made quite a few of them. For the three wheeler. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, a good name. I used to forget the last name was. We probably made 20 of them because he, uh, I made the fiberglass molds and such. And then Ted, once we got into production, he, we set up a little <clears throat> little production line and. And then he got carried away and he wanted to forget doing the car business and just make these. And he was selling because at that time 
the driving me didn't have to have a driver's license. Didn't have to have anything, no license at all. No, no license plate. Uh, and Say that again. Uh, Did anybody could drive me. You didn't have to have a driver's license. Okay. Because I think top speed must have been. On level ground, maybe 80 miles an hour. Okay. So was this for sidewalks or like the edge of the Either road? Either way. Well, mostly sidewalks, but people would use them in the street so that it was safe. And uh, there's one other one being built before, and I forget the name of it. But there was no competition. It went pretty good, and so Ted went his way, and and I went mine. I took up the car business and the stuff that we had to build the electric cars. He took that, and uh, he lived out in Covina, and he, he opened up a shop out there. And within four months, they passed the law that he had to have a driver's license, and that just shut him down. Hmm. From making the From making the electric cars and. Huh. And he just, <clears throat> his wife and kids were here, he just, he just took off and left everything and everybody and went down to Mexico. And in a couple of years he was doing pretty good. He worked for a, for a place that rented big boats and such, and he was a mechanic on the boats. But anyway, he was there until he died. Hmm. He'd come up here every year for that big race, sports car race at, uh, Long Beach. So when he left, I I I had already hired Leroy Nyer. He'd been with me for a while and made a mechanic out of him. Well, he was in high school when I hired him. And then the, the father, the guy that I had to do the paintwork on the midget, Scott Vesey. He's a damn good painter himself. Tell me about, um, I'm, it was when you worked for Ray that you guys uh, had the customer with the C-Type Jag. Guy, was, maybe, was the owner. Yeah. Was that kind of your first uh, experience with a sports car like that? No. No, because I had a couple Allard customers and uh, Ray had an Allard guy that drove on the tracks and that other that fiberglass one there I spent a lot of time with that car that was one of the that was yeah. a Sparks and Bonnie car though right yeah yep. now when you you said you had a couple of Allard customers. Is that when you were working for Ray? You you'd have customers on the he side. He had customers. No. After I moved, one of the customers <clears throat> came over to me, and I don't know where I got the other one. And uh, but I always liked Allards. Most of them had the you know they didn't come with engines. Uh, when I first went to work for Ray, you know he was getting the cars sent to him to, and putting Cadillac engines in them. Hmm. And that's what most Allards have, you know, was Cadillac. Yeah. Some of them had flathead Fords. The really good running run ones had 
Bill Pollock that did so well up at Pebble Beach, or that had a Cadillac. How did the where'd the guy with the C-type Jag come from? How'd that come to be? Do you remember anything about I that? I think that he met. I think they met at Bonneville before maybe maybe didn't have this this car then, but I think they made talked about him getting the car and he'd send it up to Ray to maintain it and take it out to the races and such. I don't think I went to several races around here with with it, but I never did. I don't. I think I ever saw a guy maybe. Bill Pollock drove it most of the time. And Bill Pollock was the driver of the car most mm -hmm. of the time. So maybe he was just the owner and financer and... Yeah, could be, I don't know. Did you get to drive the car much? Not on the track. Drove it on the street a little bit. Yeah. So the first Sparks and Bonnie team cars or whatever you want to call them cars that you guys built to race and, and represent the shop would have been that you had two 32s and a 34 or 33 yeah 34 yeah the guy that owned the 34 is still around he, he's over here a few months ago that didn't last too long maybe a year year and a half running those cars yeah he did bring us some business I guess you took a, did you take all three of them to Bonneville? Yeah. Yeah. There was a gas station, the only gas station in the town. The guy let us use his lot to keep the cars. And in in Wendover? Uh-huh. Yeah. And that was your first time to Bonneville? No, I'd gone to Bonneville before that. Just because it was a place to go, I guess. Did you go the first year they ran there? I was the first year, or the second year. I know I had the, I had that fifty Ford, and that's what we went up there in. It's either fifty or fifty one. You didn't go there with Ray Brown for, for any reason with a belly tanker or anything. I don't think so. I think I left him by then. I don't know. You told me a great story once about the top being chopped too much on one of those Sparks and Bonnie cars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what? There's, there's pictures of that car and some of the, some of the books I know. It, With that roof scabbed on Yeah, it. we had a chance to go on, you know, for the record, and they said, well, this car has a chopped top, so you got to go on a modified class running against T's off. this high off the ground. Hmm. And someone told us there's a 32 and a junkers. The junkyard wasn't more than a mile, two miles away from the, where we were running. We went away one night uh, with a torch and cut the roof off the, this 32 Ford Coupe. And, uh, was it a three-window or five-window car? I think it was a three-window. Set it on the car and made. Hang on a second. Because <laughs> this was kind of in the middle of the night, wasn't it? Yeah.
So the car itself caught on fire when you're cutting the roof off of it. Yeah, the roof was practically off of it when it caught fire. And we didn't have any way of putting it out, so we just cut the first the last six inches and grabbed it and left. We went right back to the gas station and kind of worked in the back of the lot. We just made some ankle brackets. That's a hang. Hardware store and bottom, or just made them. But anyway, top was held on with about four just angle brackets. We welded them to the old roof and bolted them to the to the stock roof, and then took a four-inch masking tape and run all the way around to close it off. To close it off. We ran it that way and the top never flew off, so... How'd you do? <laughs> oh, we didn't get the record, but I think we ran a hundred and... Somewhere around a hundred and twenty-five. Like and who was driving it? Uh... The owner. Uh, a guy named Chapkus. I see him occasionally. He's still around. He's a lawyer now. We didn't own these cars. We just performed the work for about one-fourth of what it was worth. Hmm. And uh, they were satisfied. And that was a flathead-powered car? Yeah. They all were? Yeah. Now, isn't there quite a story about that car getting wrecked at the drags? No. I see. It wasn't that car. It was a 34. Oh, okay. Uh, Everett Israelson. He... He just didn't... I don't know, he went through at a pretty good speed. And didn't get it shut down. There's a... There's a, quite a good dip. That he knew that we all knew about. And... He hit that and the car just went rolling. Hmm. And, uh, no roll bar? We probably had to have roll bars in them. I don't remember. But he got hurt, and uh, you know, there was no ambulance or anything there. So my wife ran into Lancaster, and she took him in. She took him into Lancaster, and in the in the pickup truck we had, and I guess it was an emergency all night thing there. I don't know. But anyway, he was there for a couple, two or three days. He didn't get any t terribly serious injuries. So. Now I've heard Laura say that while he, while she was taking him there, that he was really pretty hysterical. Yeah, probably was. I wasn't there. <laughs> What was the drag strip that that happened at? Saugus. At Saugus. What can you remember about the Willie's Coupe? I remember buying it from a 
an old man out here in the valley someplace out on Sherman Way, I believe. It wasn't running. Uh, it was a completely stock, completely original stock, car when you bought it. Original car, yeah. What was it again? A thirty-seven. I don't know if it's that late. Shit, it might have been a thirty-six. But anyway, it was out, and an old man had it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, we rope towed it through the shop. Bonnie didn't have any interest in it. Um, he had a lot of interest in this car. In he the Maserati. Probably more interest in that than I did, but we both worked on that, and we both worked on the Willys Coupe. We pulled the fenders and the engine and the tranny and the rear end and made a roll cage, a roll bar, half-ass roll cage for it. <laughs> I'm sure it wouldn't pass today's standards. Um, put a Ford rear end in it. With a quick change? Yeah, a quick change. I got a lot of pictures of it in the house. You know, I got a catalog of old hot rod stuff that you haven't seen. That was a quick change. Actually, we were running drags one weekend and Dry Lakes the next. And although I can't remember ever running Dry Lakes. We probably did. Really? With the Willies? Yeah. No kidding. I don't, as I say, I don't remember. Huh. Is it a 39-4 trans or a 4 trans? It's a 4 trans running in the second and third gear. So this is exactly what ended up in the 22 Junior then. Engine, transmission, and rear end, right? Well, in the first... Maybe not, maybe not the very transmission and very rear end, but... In Tony's car, yes. Yeah. Yeah, the first few runs, we just took the engine out of the coupe and put in that car. And then later, I built an engine for it, and then 30 years later, I built the one that's in the car now. I guess when this guy found it in Hemmings, and Dan bought it sight unseen, I guess it had... had Chevys and, and Chrysler's in it. Didn't have any engine when Dan bought it. No. Do you remember why you bought a Willys Coupe to yes. make a drag car out of? Because it was light. I figured I'd want to run it at the lakes. It was a good body style. For both. Drag racing and rate lakes and yeah, I, I was I was the first guy out here that I know of that was running that ran a Willys. Two or three years later, there's all kinds of Willys, but by the time I stopped, that's about the time timing lights came in and everything got going. Magazines were really 
picked up the interest. And, and where did you run that car? First place I ever ran it was Pomona. But I also ran it at Santa Ana and San Fernando. Well, I would, I would think when you got that car running and took it to the drags, that must have been uh, kind of hair-raising. That had to be the fastest car you'd driven up to that time. Only a quarter mile, yeah. Where it, it soon, see, you could run, you could run two, two places in the same day. You could run San Fernando, and the one out here, this side of San, of San, San Bernardino, where the big racetrack is now, that town. Irwindale? Irwindale. They had a quarter mile drag racetrack there. And uh, I would show up at San Fernando and guys in that class, if they were figuring they were going to be winners, mm -hmm. would take off and go out to the other place. What do you mean? Well, I that car had that good a reputation. Yeah. And you'd scare them off? They, they were turning like 10 miles an hour slower than I was. Mm -hmm. I was running against dragsters for that trophy there on the benches from San Fernando for Top Eliminator. And that's for the Willies? Yeah. Wow. You know, once in a while I would beat a dragster and be Top Eliminator. What was that like to drive that thing? Well, it's, I never <laughs> give it any thought. We'd get there and pour the fuel in it. And, Put water in it, start it up. Didn't have a radiator at all. And, uh, get the water in the block warm and shut it off until it was time to, to run. When we were through running, uh, drain the radiator, drain the fuel system, and hook up the tow bar and go. And what were you running for fuel, do you remember? What your mixture was? Well, the best mixture was approximately 10% menthol, approximately 85% nitro, I'd have to look at my records. I had, I was running on something to cool the mixture to cool the combustion chambers. It just smelled like shoe polish. And it wasn't long before other guys were running too with it. It worked. I never never lost an engine. I had cracks. All kinds of cracks. First run I'd make it a crack across from the exhaust valve through the relief area. Mm. With the nitro, it didn't seem to make a shit. That's when anybody that's running 50% were very brave, you know. I ran it for a season with 85 to 90%. And you never had engine failure? Well, I mean, I never blew the bottom end out. Mm -hmm. I never broke a rod or 
blow a gasket or anything, no. Now, I know that, I, I remember you saying something about having pistons made. Was, yeah, that had, for, was that for that engine? That was for that engine because the other ones didn't break. They closed, the ring lands closed up and locked the ring up. So I, I had Jans make pistons with the ring lands pulled down about 3 sixteenths of an inch. 3 sixteenths of an inch lower down mm -hmm. the skirt of the piston. Yeah. About as far as you could go because you'd be getting in the pinhole. Yeah. And I guess they were, they'd have to be forged pistons, right? No, they weren't. That's before anybody was making forged pistons. Oh, just, okay. Just cast pistons. Wow. And stock Merc rods and a Merc crank and... Yeah. I'm gonna think it was a Merc crank or not. I don't think it was. I think it was a Ford crank that was de-stroked. Oh, okay. To three and five eighths instead of three and three quarters. I thought it would, you know, turn higher RPM. And I sure didn't slow it down any, so that's, it was always that size. I had, uh, it was Kugots, I had balance it. What made you think you could run 85% nitro and get away with it? I don't know. Because I was running, started with 20 and into 40 and into 60 and I wasn't breaking anything so I just, I was with the blower and 397s. Do you remember what the cam was that you put in it? Yeah. Horn and Collins, I think, was one I ran most. It was a high lift, short duration. And I've, I've seen pictures of you in the car. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the setup, the seating, Positioning yeah, is really was, something. Your foot is all the way up on the dashboard for the. You only drove it for throttle. A few seconds and uh, I set the seat up so it was comfortable and I didn't have to make a complicated <clears throat> linkage. I just, just did it that way. Hmm. Everybody kind of laughs at it, but it was just done for simplicity. Yeah. Well, they weren't laughing if you were beating them every weekend. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you ran that car for one season? No, I think it was like two seasons. And you got to know Tony Nancy sometime? I had rented a garage back of where he lived with his mother and stepfather, I guess. I was going to build a dragster. And I don't know what happened to that idea. I know I got a chassis. And by I had bought a 20, about a 24T roadster that was sitting next to an apartment building in Hollywood. And I was going to build a, you know, a drag car. Not really a dragster, but whatever class it would have been in. That's when I met Tony, because he lived in the house right in front of me. 
Was he already in the upholstery business, do you remember? He no. Stopped, did he start pretty no, young? he was still in school when he was still in junior high, I think. But it wasn't long after that that he was doing stuff for guys, you know, uh, out of his home. So what do you remember about the transition of uh, of the Willies and then Tony kind of coming in and wanting to have you help him with the 22 Junior? He had a roadster before 22 Junior, just a... Uh, the 27T, or uh, and uh, he couldn't get it to go very fast. And then he, over a period of time, he, he built this 29, 22 Junior, and um, he ran that, and you know, it ran okay. Just you know, he wasn't setting records. And, you know, I don't remember, I'll just you know, I'll take the around the coop and we'll put it in here and you can run it a few times and see what you think. And we did that and you know, everything went fine. But it wasn't quite as fast as the coop. Yeah, just about the same. Yeah? Yeah. Just about. Could even have been a mile faster at some strips, you know, under the work conditions. But it was always in a, the late twenties to the early thirties, as I recall. So how how long did Sparks and Bonnie last? It lasted until we moved up to our second location across from RKO Studios at Gallery Melrose. That was probably. At least three years. Take me through what you remember about the Maserati, the Grand Prix car. How you how you came to own that and well, I don't know because I, I as I remember, it was a Paramount picture. And I didn't really have anything to do with it until they had crashed it and burned it in the crash and trying to get rid of it. Wasn't it a Kirk Douglas movie? Yeah, yeah, he was the it's star. The Racers. Yeah, the Racers. Yeah. Well, another guy swears that it was an MGM picture. But he couldn't tell me anything else. I know that we got the car, it was a wreck. I forget whether they paid a hundred dollars or didn't pay anything for it from Paramount. Because I had, I knew quite a few people at Paramount and, um, for transportation, and I rebuilt it as necessary. And the four-cylinder with a supercharger. But, but you couldn't get the supercharger going oh, again, right? No, it all busted. The cases were busted. So you ran it with its engine without the supercharger? Yes, uh-huh. He wrecked. And, uh... And I know that we ran it at Willis Springs. 
three or four times. It did. It did quite well with uh, the owner of that sports car, Jacques, who was and, and still is my stockbroker. And he did quite well in it. So he drove the Maserati. He drove the Maserati. And uh, another guy that drove it was Jimmy Bryan, two-time Indy winner. He was he was a hot dog for, until he killed himself. I think he only ran up there once. How long do you think you had it? I think we had it for I don't know. I must have had it for at least three years. Well, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't get a whole lot of money for the Maserati when you sold it. That was not. <laughs> well, that's not so bad if you didn't pay hardly anything for it. So did Sparks and Bonnie just turn into Sparks Automotive, I guess? Yeah, Sparks Precision Automotive. Tell me about the stock car thing, because I've seen pictures of it, and, and I've heard about it. That lasted for... It lasted until <clears throat> Mercury, when all the car companies stopped stock car racing. Maybe 59. We only did it for, we only did it for a couple of years because Bill Strop always had three cars he ran every year, you know, given to him by Lincoln Mercury mm -hmm. to race. And one time he said to me, would you like one of my old cars to run for next season? He said, we'll supply whatever parts we have and tires. So I said, sure, hell yes. So he gave me that stock car and uh, we had pretty good success with it. Billy Garrett drove it, and Johnny Parsons drove it, and Alan Heath drove it until I got in a battle with him and fired him. Uh, he never ran, never won any prestigious races, but on the Phoenix Mile, we were leading it with a half lap to go. And it broke an axle right in the corner. And it just slid up into the fence. And that was as close to winning any, any big stuff that we had. Is that as far away as you went with the car? To I'd race say, it? Yes. Uh -huh. So it was mostly West Coast events? Yes. And was all oval stuff? No, out at... Paramount Ranch was a road course. And, and they would run stock cars there? Yeah. Yeah, for a couple of years they did. Yeah, we had a good, a good time with it. And, uh, I mean, then a stock car was a stock car, you know. The brakes were stock, you could run vents in the backing plate. The engines, I don't know. I just know about what Strop says. Don't don't do any cheating. Just run it. You know, a stock cam, stock bar, and stroke. And no big porting in the heads. You can you know knock off rough stuff. 
sure everybody else was cheating more than that, but we we placed up there, you know, thirds, fourths, fifths, and nothing more than that. We, you know, and then we run several races on 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 the one engine. Never really had an engine failure. That one axle was the only big failure we ever had. And when Mercury drew out of racing, then we had to give the car back to Straw. And uh, that was the end of it for a few years. Now, how did you know him? Through midget racing. Oh, yeah? He drove midgets and he, and, uh, he owned midget, a midget both. This is back in the, in the 40s, I guess, right after the war. Hmm. A very nice guy. In later years, I'd see him up at Laguna Seca, you know, whenever I was up there. What do you remember about Johnny Parsons? A nice, friendly, good-looking guy. Lived in Van Nuys. He drove one of Myers Midgets, uh, the one was the offhand, so he was in the shop quite often. And um, there's a very pleasant guy. I don't think he had an enemy in the world. I let him drive my Mercury because Billy Garrett uh, had an accident. In the, Spent car, midget, or something, and it was laid up for a couple of months. And Parsons hopped right in and you know, did a great job. And you said the other driver was Alan Heath? Yeah. He drove it one race. I don't know, after a year and a quarter, you know, they're always, you know, banging the fenders and such. So I spent some time and went through the car. And, that time I did the engine over and painted it nice blue with a white stripe and, and uh, I don't know why I put Heath in it because he only had one arm then. He was the first race he ever drove with one arm. You know, he, he lost an arm in a, in a midget accident. Mm -hmm. And that had been a couple years, you know. He had driven some midgets. He wanted to drive the the stock car, and I don't know why, where the other two guys were, but anyway, he, he drove it. I said, now just don't make a big hero out of yourself, because <laughs> this is the first stock car you've been in for a while. And I just did a lot of work on painting the car, and so, so don't crash it. Well, in, in a 10-lap race, heat race, I think he had damaged every panel on it. Nothing, nothing ferocious, he didn't roll it or anything like that, he was banging off people. Mm. But that was his, kind of his trademark, and I knew it was only. He finished the race, but he had shit, he had to do all that work over again. Yeah. But, um, it was the only time he drove it. So you fired him from yeah, that? Yeah, I just said that. I said, Parsons is coming back. Um, hmm. uh, he lived a charmed life because he had been in 
humongous actions through the years. I first saw him up in Seattle, this, the amphiation I told you about was my best man. We drove one of my hot rods up there to see my sister who lived there. And there was a midget race going that night, so we went there. And here they, they introduced Alan Heath, who's a star driver up there. And, and he won the main event and won everything. Just, you know, a hell of a driver. What was I going to say? But anyway. You said he lived a charmed life. Well, he fell in a shower and hit his head and killed himself, you know, accidentally. After all that racing? After all that racing, yeah. And was he? And he was. He was a wild man when he raced. Yeah, he's a wild man. Period. Yeah, Vukovic, Billy was wild, but Heath was wilder than he was. So, what do you remember about the early '60s, as far as what what your business was? When did it start to kind of break away from being a general business automotive repair shop and specialty repair? work to restoration. restoration in the early 60s the first restoration you did for yourself you said yeah it was just a little sound I had that I wanted to <clears throat> yeah it was the first first one I did what was the first job restoration job that you had where someone came to you and said I have this car and I want you to restore it for me to show, you know, to show quality. I don't know. There was, there were several in the very early. Probably did a half a dozen of them. I don't even have pictures of them anymore. But there's only one that, that halfway, made a name for me. Was a guy named Earl Davis. I did, I did several. Did I bet I did. At least six, six, seven or eight cars for him two years. Through the early years, or, or yeah, well, all up long. until he got out of it after a while. He joined the CCCA, and in a couple of years, he was president of the Classic Car Club, and he by. Occasionally by a car sight unseen, we made numerous trips to the Midwest and South, particularly Florida, and uh, to the auctions. And uh, he'd find a car that he thought would make good money for him, and I'd look over to give him a rough-ass price on restoring it, and he would buy it and ship it home and ship it to me, and we'd restore it. And we, did, we did several of them for him. And what do you remember about, about things moving away from, as far as for your business, performance-oriented work? Because it sounds to me like somewhere along the way that happened too. Like hot rods kind of went away. Well, hot rods really went away in the, in the, well, Christ, in the late 50s anyway. Maybe before that. Uh, 
And I kind of lost interest in them. I was only that point interested in something I could make money at. Yeah. Maybe they didn't spend money on hot rods. And sports cars, that kind of came and went for you too, didn't it? Yeah. I restored a couple hours that did very good. I can't say it was really restoring them, because they weren't that old yet. Uh, building engines. Do you think it also, you know, talking about how, like, performance-oriented business kind of drifted away, um, do you think it also had something to do with the fact that you were known as, as being so good with flatheads and making them run, and the flathead just kind of became obsolete? Well, flathead became obsolete, that's for sure. In the, in the 60s, were you developing an interest in... Classic cars? In classic cars and the concourse so. circuit or anything like no, that? No, it was all bicycle racing. That was your main yeah. passion? Yeah. Outside of running the shop? For, me, for many years, actually. All those trophies in that cabinet in there is from bicycle racing. Now that was my big passion for many years. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense now, knowing that in the 60s, all that, you know, all that outside stuff of hot rodding and sports car racing and car racing in general and hopping up engines and going to the races. I was fat, I smoked a lot, I weighed a lot. When? Before you rode, right? Uh, just before, I just I, maybe the first couple months that I rode. And uh, well, what, you were riding in the fifties, though. Not the early fifties. Was that whatever that was? That one jacket. That's when I fifty-eight. Fifty-eight. Well, that's when I won the state championship. But I think I was I was riding in the certainly by fifty-five, fifty-four. But I guess what I'm saying is that it makes sense to me that all this basically hot rodding in whatever form, whether it's sports cars or high performance auto stuff, it all kind of seemed to go away in the 60s for you. And you had, a, you had your business and it was making money and you, you were repairing cars, but you were, you were really trying to win races on your bike at that point. You weren't worried about building a car to to race for you or anybody else or building race engines or anything like that? Or, or were you? Were you still building race high-performance engines? I don't think so. No, I, I got from a nothing rider to a, a fast, good rider in probably a year and a half. And I thought, I'll just climb right up the ladder and I'll be... <laughs> champion of the country. Well, that never happened. And, uh, when I kept riding, it was a stress reliever for me. Bare minimum of 400 miles a week. Lots of times 500. But during the work week, you were able to maintain that? Yes. Well, I, yeah, I go... Tuesday, after 5 o'clock, I grew up riding Griffith Park in the hills. 
And Wednesday, I'd meet a, a group out at Topanga Canyon in Ventura. And we'd go on anywhere from 80 to 100 miles. Uh, Thursday, back up in the park again. Of course, I got through there, I'd go to the shop, you know, I'd work till 10 o'clock at night. I had plenty of energy then. The races were always on Sunday. I'd always ride on Saturday, oh, from here, where you went today at Montrose, because a friend of mine had a bike shop up there. And I'd always ride up there and end up into the canyons for a while up there and then home. It saved my, you know, I, was, I weighed 158 pounds for a long time. I started riding, I dropped down to 123 and 120. And when I was really in great shape, I weighed 118. No, I think I kept eating and smoking and drinking once in a while and carousing like I did, I probably wouldn't be around now. I really, I want to hear this. What? The Roadster Pickup. How did that stay with you through life? I mean, you're starting businesses and switching jobs and yeah. starting a family. And yet you never, no one ever came along and said, hey, I'll, I'll give you 200 bucks for that thing. Well, I wouldn't say that. But, um, but you never wanted, you never wanted never to part really, with it. No, it had the... I had the Myers heads and manifold that I had to paint his house to get. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know why I kept it. I just, I liked it, I guess. <laughs> I drove it a lot. Oh, did you really? Yeah. You were still driving it? Like through the 50s and into the 60s? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. What was it like? In the in the fifties and sixties, how oh. finished out was it? Not like it is now, except. So you had painted it at some point in the fifties. Oh yeah, when it was all, I did it all up at Tweedy. I took it apart up there and decided to do the paint job and and work on the engine. I think the engine was blown or out of it. It's not. I don't even know if it's the same engine as it originally had in or not. No, it's an engine I got from Homer Farnham, who was a big legs racer. So, so the Roadster pickup was never really off the road completely? It was for a while, because I can't remember what was wrong with the engine. Yeah, it was off the road and it was apart for some time. So the, so the original engine is, or the engine that you built at Myers for it is gone. Yes, but I think that was built by Myers because this Homer guy that I, that was oh. in his garage, he was a very best friend of, of Myers and Bud Myers. And I'm sure he built the engine there. For his Roadster or, or hot rod. Yeah. And then when you needed an engine and you bought his... That engine was under his workbench over on Serrano. And so you put that engine in that in the Roadster pickup when you took it to Tweedy and redid it? 
Yes. Engine just transferred the heads and intake and other components from from the original engine onto his. Yes, I, I'm. I'm reasonably sure that. Uh, and what makes me so sure is you'll hear a lot of piston slap in that engine. Yeah. And he always thought that giving pistons lots of clearance was the road to more faster. And I never give him that much clearance. And uh, that engine's got a lot of piston clearance. The Roadster pickup engine, does it have a performance cam in it? Yeah, it has a Winfield. A mild, I think it's a Winfield three-quarter. It's amazing to me that you held on to that. That it made it. What are your memories about this historic hot run? Thing. Yeah, Bruce was, was one of the first. Do you remember thinking that that was kind of kind of a crazy idea? Was it? No, I didn't think it was a crazy idea. I thought I thought that the time had come to do it. That's nice to hear. I I didn't know if you would think, geez, those are cars that we built to. To run into the ground and forget about. <laughs> no, no. And that Don Spencer car, that kind of, in a in a funny way, that that, that kind, kind of, of started the whole. Yes. The whole movement, and and it also, kind of, uh, isn't that around the time when, Pete, kind of went from the whatever that, the name of his company at the time, PCB3 or whatever that was. Uh -huh. Isn't yeah. that, was it in that time that he kind of hooked up with Alex? Or? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We were at a show that they had in Bakersfield every year about Outrods. I forget what the name of it is, they still have it. And we'd all get together on a Friday night and have a dinner. And uh, that's when Pete, well, that's when first I heard Pete say anything about changing names. And he was uh, making a deal with Alex. I think it pretty much saved Alex. I mean, he was, you know, he had no interests, no cars. Hmm. He hooked up with Pete, and man, he just come to life. Those all these shows and you know, signs, autographs, autograph on everything, and a lot more famous than he was in the in the early days. So, so he was completely retired and out of it when. Yeah. When Pete oh came. yeah, he retired. Autos or auto racing or anything in hell in the fifties. But he did very good. He had he had the personnel and he got in close with Edelbrock and that helped him a lot. Talking about these historic hot rods, like the Pearson Brothers Coupe or the SoCal Belly Tanker or Don Spencer's Roadster or the McGee Roadster, any of that stuff. When you saw those cars in the back in the day when they were being used in the 50s 
were those the standout cars at the time for you then? I mean, did you recognize kind of the that those cars were had set a standard or, or were groundbreaking? Did you notice them? I, noticed I guess. It. Yeah, I noticed the Don Spencer car. That's for sure. But he was never a super friendly guy, and I never really knew him that well. Uh, it started around. 1940 or 41. That's when it started with me. Miners, the poorest of the poor, you know, the whole group of us that were coming out together that were rowdy and. Tell me about um, what led up to you making the decision to retire and what you were doing around that time. Well, you know, I know, something happened where I decided to get the hell out of there. You're just working on Gower at this point? Mm -hmm. Well, I was doing, doing movie work. Yeah. Too. And when you say movie work, renting cars? Renting cars, but a lot of times I'd go with them. Mm. You know, they need a chauffeur or... Uh, I'd have to take him out. That's why I had the truck and trailer. You know, I charged him to take him out and a little bit to be there. And but that got that got very tiresome. The older I got, because their hours are very long. You know, on location. You know, six in the morning and wrap it when it get dark. Maybe you know, mm. eight o'clock. And then come home and unload and all that stuff. So that was one one reason. The time that actually happened, I had just finished. Uh, we had the paintwork all done on that, so all I had to do was assemble it and, and put the engine in and stuff like that. So which um, which car were you pointing at there? The uh, sixteen. Uh, the dark blue V16. Yeah. Okay. I told Leroy I was going to be shutting down. And he says, well, that's fine. He says, uh, I've got a standing offer to go to work over to Peterson Museum. Uh, just maintaining cars and doing This is Leroy who said uh, this? Huh? Leroy said this? Yeah. Okay. And... So when I, when I left, uh, you know, he, he left and went to work over at the Peterson, and he seemed to like it okay, and then I left. And I had the machine shop, you know, they were paying rent, and the body shop was paying rent, and they both never missed a day. And so that was fine. So, when Leroy left and went to the Peterson, there was a gap of several years that you were still on Gower, just by yourself, right? I just kept that, yeah, I kept a center stall. You know, that little, the little stall. I could keep a couple cars in there, and I did. And I kept 
I didn't bring the equipment home until, or get rid of it until I got out of there, actually. So, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, I can, I can tell you this. I'm almost positive about this. That the day I met you, the Tony Nancy engine wasn't done, but it was real close. It was on a stand. The blower was on it. And... Well, I don't know when I finished that engine for Tony. Uh, you know, Dan owned the... Dan owned the car then, mm -hmm. and Dan had restored the car, and uh, and he was waiting for the engine. She doesn't know what year it was. Well, it had to be, it had to be, I think it was 95. So when you were in, on your own in Gow, on Gower, you were building engines for people though, right? Yeah. You did the blown flathead for the Tony Nancy car. Yeah, that was one of the last things I did. When did you build the Joan Spencer engine for Bruce? Oh, maybe, I don't know, a couple of years before that. And then I built, Bruce always wanted an engine, just to, I built an engine for him, so that's, did that and put it in a stand. That's the way his garage has been there ever since, for years. And, uh, Did you build it to yeah. run? Yeah. It's not oh, just no. a display engine. Oh, no. How about a display engine? No, it had to be new new heads. I think that, I think they were for the Myers heads or the manifold. I, I think they probably were. They were either new or very good heads. and. Uh, Hmm. A four-inch crank and three and five sixteenths bore. So, so what else? Oh, that's it, I guess. Hmm? That's it, I guess. <laughs> I feel like I really took you to the mat tonight. Oh no, no, no! How we can still go another ten minutes before the the uh, worldwide news comes on? Well, now, folks, what can you say about that? That, my friends, is your worldwide news. <laughs> that is all the news you need. Thank you so much to Tommy Sparks for all the time. As I said in the intro, there were several hours of audio that we pulled from to make these three episodes and Tom really he really outdid himself and we, we can't thank him enough and by the way a little known fact or maybe not <laughs> is you know Tom Sparks was the very first film interview subject for the American Hot Rod Foundation he started that series and we can't thank him enough for that he sat down with Ray Brown and talked to Henry Astor and it's just a wonderful document. You can see some of that on our YouTube channel. So yeah, it, it goes way back with him and the foundation. And he introduced me to the American Hot Rod Foundation. He's the one that hipped me to this work being done. And I just could never begin to thank him enough for that because that has certainly changed my life. So thank you for that, Tom. And thank you for the many life lessons 
most of which had nothing to do with hot rodding. But uh, believe me, the hot rodding stuff would have been enough. So thanks, pal. Special thanks, as always, to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood. Our PR person is Angela Helton, with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan, and as always, all broadcast music is written and performed by me. Special, special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller. He's always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest around here. Um, the American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Stephen Carroll Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. So as always, if you'd like to learn more about us, please go to our website. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise or simply by making a donation. Also, follow us across all our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images pulled from the Foundation archives, as well as information on future episodes of the broadcast. So, once again, huge thanks to the great Tommy Sparks for his generosity, for being such a great friend of the American Hot Rod Foundation, and for everything he contributed to our great American pastime throughout his entire life. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us here next time for another great episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.